You're listening to The Golf Stream, the official podcast of the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies at Texas A&M University, Corpus Christi. The importance of conservation and restoration is exactly to that point. We know that there's this balance that is struck between removing the oysters from the habitat for the things that we enjoy and also maintaining enough oysters in the bay to provide all the important ecological benefits that they provide. The following episode was recorded live during the Texas Oyster Roundup at Water Street Market in downtown Corpus Christi. As with any live production, especially one that's outdoors, anything can and does happen. The panel discussion, steered by moderators John and Marcus, covers all things oysters, from aquaculture to conservation and restoration. Now grab your lemons and hot sauce. Let's learn about oysters. My name is Megan Radke. I am the communications coordinator at the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies at Texas A&M University Corpus Christi. And I'm also a producer of our little podcast called the Gulfstream Podcast. So, of course, I can't not plug that right now. So, everybody, please, um, if you have a chance, go like and subscribe to the Gulfstream. We're on most major podcast platforms and on YouTube. So, um, we've got a real treat for y'all here today. Um, We've got a panel of oyster experts. They're going to talk about all kinds of things, uh, everything oysters, and we've got some excellent excellent moderators john and marcus and so i'm gonna hand it over to them right now to get started so thank you guys for joining us cool well thank you very much for having us and uh thanks for being out on this beautiful earth day and uh thanks for brad and richard for having the platform to have us here uh really excited to be here and uh marcus is a professional fly fisherman i'm a professional surf nature photographer so that's our little background and uh, we have these uh, great doctors and uh, scientists with us. So we'll just jump right on in. All right, so how about you guys, when we give you a little bio, you guys just kind of stand up, wave to the crowd, let everybody know who you're at. Can you guys hear us okay? Everybody good? Go. Cool. All right. All right, you wanna do the first one, dude? Uh, Dr. Chris Hollenbeck is an assistant professor with a joint appointment with Texas A&M University. Uh, Corpus Christi and Texas A&M AgLife research. His research involves applying genetic approaches to better understand and manage populations of exploited fish and shellfish, particularly in the context of aquaculture. His work is aquaculture focus is on improvement, production, and sustainability in the aquaculture industry through the development of selective breeding programs. Man, that's a mouthful. I've never seen it before, dude. (laughs) And that concludes our program. Man, that's the most big words I've ever said in my life. (laughs) (laughs) And up next, we have Brad Lomax, who is kind of, we'll call you the oyster godfather. Yeah, Yeah. Dr. Godfather oyster. Yeah. Yeah. So he's a restauranteur, a local visionary, who's responsible for founding Water Street restaurants in 1983 which is older than most of the people here probably. Texas Surf Museum in 2005, and the Texas Oyster Ranch in 2020. Been a busy man lately, dude. Uh, The state's first permanent oyster farm, Brad is named co-chair of the Coastal Bend Oyster Task Force by uh, Rep Todd Hunter, and spearheaded the development of the oyster mariculture industry in Texas. Everybody think we should give this dude a round of applause. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful, yeah. Um, Next up, Dr. Joey Matt, 
has been involved in the science and application of oysters breeding since 2012. He was an employee, master's student, and PhD student at the Aquaculture Genetics Breeding and Technological Center at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science. He's currently a postdoc at Texas A&M University in Corpus Christi, exploring research questions relevant to breeding better oysters for Texas and abroad. All right, next we have Jennifer Pollock. That, how do you say, okay. She's endowed chair of the Coastal Conservation and Restoration of the Heart Research Institute for the Gulf of Mexico Studies at the Texas A&M University, Corpus Christi. Dr. Pollock and her team at HRI work to provide science-based information to provide or to support resource management and conservation efforts and improve sustainability of coastal ecosystems. Thanks for joining. And next up, we have Dr. Vicki Parente is the Director of Research for Palacious Marine Agricultural Research, where she is designing and implementing a research program to support the new oyster aquaculture industry in Texas and reef restoration efforts. Before joining PMAR in 2020, she received a bachelor's degree in marine biology from Texas A&M at Galveston and a PhD in fisheries and aquaculture from Auburn University. Welcome. Man, that was a that was a mouthful for all of you guys. So <laughs> let's get to the nitty gritty. Yeah. I think the first question is to you, Brad. Uh, why don't you tell us about your experience starting the first Texas oyster farm, and uh, we'll get to some more. So first, can you, am I on? Test. Yeah. So the I think the first thing that I want to do is. Um, Thank the Nueces County Department of Corrections for allowing Marcus and John to get out and, be, and the, their parole officers for releasing them to come out and be a part of this event. Check-ins at 8 o'clock. So, <laughs> so, um, so I, you know, the th it started four years ago when I, in working with Heart Research Institute and my friends there discovered that there was, that Texas was the only state with a coastline that didn't allow oyster farming, finding out more about oyster farming. I'm condensing, you know, five or six years here into a soundbite, but um, we got the law passed and we went through all this entire process, very educational, very interesting. Um, to the point, we got to the point, and you guys were a part of this, where we stocked our first baby oysters that were spawned by Auburn University, uh, where uh, Vicki trained um, in, the, in, the, in Copano Bay. And so we went through all this process, and then as soon as we did that, I promise you, that's when the real learning began. We learned that what the impact that Texas environment has on this equipment and and you know how to how to handle all the various problems there's there's no way to study that you know you just go out there and get beat up so all of that finally culminated with a sale and, and to be honest with you guys all of this was done 
would they, none of it really mattered to me until the, a transaction took place. So we, the first transaction was state rep Todd Hunter purchased with real money. I tested it. The uh, uh, the first dozen oysters. And so since then, we've been in the process of building an industry. And David Aparicio, I know, is here somewhere, and he is the third permitted oyster farmer in Texas. And, and Hannah Kaplan, who sent her oysters down, is number two. So I guess what I tell you, I mean, there's a million things, ways I can go with it, but it's happening, you know? It's, it's an industry and it's the future of what oyster farming is going to, of what oyster harvesting is going to look like. Because we are not, you guys all know, as fishermen and environmentalists, that we can't keep dredging the bottom for, to get our oysters. That's my answer, I'm sticking to it. Don't call on me again. <laughs> well, I think you hit the nail on the head because uh, my next question was why oysters, but uh, like you mentioned, you know, we've seen the dredging, we've seen what they've done. Uh, Marcus and I being fishermen and everybody else here, you know, that that's a home for these fish, for the bait that they eat. And, uh, you know, it, it's something that if we lose, we're gonna lose our base system. So, um, unless you wanna, go on further with why oysters, man. I think you kind of nailed it out of the park. Yeah. I think the question is, why didn't Richard get to buy the first dozen oysters? Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. Well, this goes out, uh, next question to Chris and Chris or Joey, whoever feels better at this. What role does genetics play in oyster farming and managing oyster fisheries? Right. Um, do I need to turn the, okay, that's good. Um, so I, I don't know if I feel better about this one, but I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, so I, I guess genetics kind of conjures up a lot of different ideas for people. So um, for in this case, what we're talking about is um, basically genetic tools. So um, genetics gives us the ability, um, in the case of oysters, to kind of understand how oyster populations work. And that's really useful in, in kind of a variety of ways. So from a, um, a fisheries management point of view, it's really useful to be able to understand um, how many populations there are, how they're structured, how individuals move from place to place, um, so, so how, how they migrate and, and at what stage. Um, also things like how individuals are adapted to their environment. Um, all of those things factor into how um, management decisions are made, and so genetic tools kind of give us a way to ask those questions and then to take that information and put it into management plans and define management units and, um, and that sort of thing. Um, from, from a farming point of view, um, kind of the same idea. We want oysters that are really well suited to farming, to be able to grow in a farm environment, to survive well. It's kind of what impacts the bottom line. Um, and, and a lot of that has a genetic component. So if, if we want to, for example, breed oysters to um, survive well to um, to kind of make a good product for the market. Um, that's that's really a genetic question. So, cool. I, I didn't even think about oysters migrating like you talked about. I'm like, yo, they're just there. There's a bed, and now I'm like, wow, tides, currents, all that. That makes total sense to me now. Yeah, when you go over there and look at their display over there, how small those little ones are just like shooting around in that stuff. You're like, dude, these get below anywhere. Anywhere. The current in the Laguna Madre is ridiculous sometimes. So that's cool. It's really interesting. I'm learning. 
I'm gonna change questions on you really fast. So while you're already up here, why did you pick oysters? You're doing research on oysters. Why is it important to you? And um, so I, my my background is is in kind of aquaculture breeding in general. So I, I've worked on um, uh, lots of fishes, salmon, and um, and and other um, you know aquaculture fishes. No, oh, is, is that better? I don't want to be too close. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, but I'm from Texas, and uh, you know this this new Texas oyster industry excited me, um, I, and I, I'm excited to be here and, and part of this new thing that is happening, and um, being able to kind of apply the things that we know from other species um, that that have um, a, a more sort of mature um, breeding technology and, and, and that sort of thing um, is exciting, and it's it's really cool to be sort of on the ground floor of. Uh, of an industry that's just starting and to, to help to, to kind of shape that. So. Yeah, it's definitely interesting and cool to be on the ground floor. Like we were able to put out the first batch and like you have a sense of pride and like, hey man, we are helping out. And like, thanks for the invite on that, Brad. Uh, it wasn't Marcus and I doing it on our own. <laughs> but, free, uh, la free labor for Brad. He's yeah. like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> too funny, too funny. So, Let's move on to this. Uh, what is it important about oyster genetics in Texas? So I'll take this as the, the outsider, uh, the Virginian here. Um, all Texans know that Texas is special, right? Well, it's, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Well, it can also be applied to um, the genetics of, of oysters. There is a genetically distinct population of oysters in the Laguna Madre. It's, it's the most commonly found oyster down there is part of this genetically distinct population that's different genetically from oysters that you'd find in the rest of the Gulf. Um, going up north, if San Antonio Bay and northwards, you'll more commonly find oysters of a different genetic type. Um, and then in between these two regions, it's a transition zone, um, you can find oysters of these genetic types in similar abundance. Um, and this is really important for um, uh, stocking your farm. Um, if you're in the transition zone, you can stock oysters of, of both genetic types. If you're in San Antonio Bay and northwards, um, you're only permitted to stock the northern type on your farm. But it's also really important for us as scientists and breeders because of the consequences of this genetic difference. You know, these oysters we expect are locally adapted to different environments, and Laguna Madre being a much different environment for the hypersaline um, um, aspects of it uh, to the mesohaline uh, mid-salinity bays that you find throughout the rest of Texas. So that's really important to know because you want to be, you know, stocking your farm with regionally adapted animals and as, as breeders, we're really interested in making sure that you get seed that, you know, is adapted to perform really well in your environment. Very interesting. Oh, man. Do one of you guys want to explain the process of the selective breeding and why it's important for the oyster? I'll let Chris start and I'll finish. <laughs> <laughs> so um, selective breeding is, is essentially this process of um, growing up individuals every year in some kind of closed population, um, evaluating them for some traits that you're interested in. In, in oysters, we're interested in survival, survival 
um, is the thing that impacts the bottom line the most. Um, you know, Brad, Brad will tell you. Um, but also things like growth and meat quality, these are important traits. Um, and we know that some individuals are just genetically better, superior than others. So selective breeding is just being careful about measuring this in lots of individuals. Um, and then selecting those that are superior to breed the next generation. And over time, um, this process kind of develops um, generation after generation until you have, you know, animals that are really well suited for, for something like oyster farming. Um, our, our kind of twist on that is that um, genetic technology has gotten to the point where um, we can actually look directly at the DNA of individuals and be able to make decisions based off of that. Um, and that's really useful. It, it makes us, um, it gives us the ability to be really precise about how we make those decisions and to make progress, you know, relatively quickly. So, let me ask another question really fast. This is unscripted, but uh, on the oyster, say genetically over time through the selective breeding process, does that cause health problems later? Like you get, say, a disease hits the oyster reef, will it wipe out whole populations of oyster reefs, or is that a disease an issue in that situation? So, mind if I answer? So, an, an important thing for some new stressor um, would be genetic diversity. So, if a, a, a new pathogen were to emerge um, in an environment, you would want there to be a diverse population of animals so that they all wouldn't succumb to, to this stressor. And so, from breeding, you are selecting um, certain individuals that have good traits, um, but you're also you want to maintain genetic diversity. So there is a trade-off between improvement and diversity, but um, there are good examples of breeding programs that have done a really good job of maintaining that genetic diversity while also seeing that improvement. But also to your point about like an emerging you know, pathogen or disease or stressor, that's why it's so important to have a breeding program operational and ready to immediately respond to that issue that the industry could be facing. You know, um, we don't want those problems to arise, but just over time in other areas with more mature industries, we've seen you know, a new disease or, or, or a new problem like ocean acidification come up and you know, the, the industry really could get a lot of value out of, out of a breeding program being able to respond to and, and help the industry through that. Wow, great question, Marcus. That's awesome. <laughs> no, I'm stoked. I'm learning, man. Um, yeah, great. And uh, that's part of that selective breeding question, correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, great, great. All right, Dr. Pollock, what is the current state of oyster populations in Texas, and why is their restoration and conservation important? or how do oysters benefit our bays beyond just oyster population? Am I on? Yep. Okay. All right, oysters are the only habitat that we eat. So it makes it really complicated to manage. It's like if you went and caught a fish and took all the water. So you can see why it becomes difficult to maintain oyster populations over time. This means that you need to actively manage them. We, we want to harvest oysters because we want to eat them. They're delicious, but we know they also do lots of other things for us. They filter the water. They make habitat. They protect shorelines. They sequester carbon, which we're learning a lot about, and can help reduce atmospheric CO2 emissions. So um, the, the importance of 
conservation and restoration is exactly to that point. We know that there's this balance that is struck between removing the oysters from the habitat for the things that we enjoy and also maintaining enough oysters in the bay to provide all the important ecological benefits that they provide. This has been a really um, dynamic last decade. Actually, it's been a really dynamic last since 2000 in the Gulf of Mexico. Oyster populations have just been going down steadily. And that trend has been mirrored in Texas. The interesting thing is actually in the last five years in Texas, the trend has actually increased a little bit, making it look like Texas oysters are in pretty good condition. But what we're seeing is that in Florida, Apalachicola Bay, which is where tons of oysters come from, it's been closed. There's, it's, it has a five-year closure on it. Mississippi Sound, where a ton of oysters come out of, closed. There was a huge uh, loss of oysters because of the Mississippi River water flooding in there. This means that all of those fishermen and that fishery has transported itself to Texas. So we see more oysters coming out of Texas bays, not necessarily because the fishery is in the best condition, but because the pressure on the fishery has increased. So, so conservation and restoration is, is the other side of, of that scale. We're removing oysters and we need to do something to maintain uh, long-term sustainability for, for food and for all the benefits that we expect that they provide for us. Yeah, that makes total sense. What are some methods used for oyster restoration, uh, oyster restoration in Texas? Restoring an oyster reef is, is actually fairly simple in Texas. So we have a lot of, uh, we have enough oysters that are still in our bays. We're, we're in a good position where it's sort of the field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. So what that means is essentially we've removed the fundamental building blocks that the baby oysters need to attach to. So that's the, the shells of the older generations of oysters that make the reef. As we harvest a reef, which is done by an oyster dredge, which is like a rake that gets pulled behind a boat, those shells are removed. And then the new generations of oysters that these guys are talking about that are larval, tiny, planktonic, are looking for something to attach to. You, you've probably pulled anything out of the water like a shoe or a rope or anything, you'll see there's an oyster on it. So it's looking for something to cement itself onto. And so what we do in Texas is we put that, that important fundamental building block material back in the bays in the right places and at the right times. And then those larval oysters that are out there, they're desperate for a place to attach and create living reef. They, they do the rest of the job for us. And if there's just a mud bottom, they won't have anywhere to go or they sink right into that mud and can't. Yeah, so they need to attach to something. They're kind of, like, I say it's like a butterfly. They have to go through all these metamorphic stages. And if they don't have, they'll attach to a small grain of sand or, or anything they can find, but then they're just going to kind of get buried in the, bare bo the bay bottom. So that just kind of drops back into the next question, which is, is there any ongoing oyster research that you're particularly excited about right now? Oh, we have so much exciting research going on. Come visit us at HRI. We'll tell you all about it. Uh, yeah, we, so, it's you like know. like a nightclub. <laughs> thank you for asking about our exciting research. We, uh, we have so much exciting stuff going on right now. So I have a lot of graduate students who are here today who are also, will also be happy to share with you what they're working on. But some of the things that we're looking at right now are understanding restoring oyster reefs in deeper water where they're traditionally harvested, like I said, and have been degraded over time. But we're also looking in the really shallow parts of the bay. So even though those haven't been traditionally harvested, 
What we want to understand is are those special places that should be protected in a different way? You know, if we remove those deeper oyster reefs, do they get replaced by the shallow reefs? And what we're starting to understand is that those systems are actually quite different and very unique in terms of the habitat that they provide. So if you lose one, you don't just get to point to another and say like, but we still have that shallow reef over there. It's actually quite different. So it's, it's sort of the like, not all oyster reefs are the same. And, I, and I'll talk about one other project that we have going with oysters right now is understanding the role of oysters to capture and store carbon. So carbon sequestration by oysters. And if you're following the news, you know that carbon sequestration is becoming a very big topic everywhere in the energy industry, um, you know, changing out your appliances to try to reduce your carbon footprint. We're trying to learn, can oysters do this as well? You know, the way that, that trees take up carbon, you might all be familiar with, right? They're trees, they photosynthesize. When they do that, they take up CO2 from the atmosphere and make, they make tree. Oysters are not trees, but they eat tons and tons of phytoplankton, which are tiny plants floating around in the bay that are also taking up enormous amounts of CO2. So those oysters can consume this massive amount of, of carbon that's trapped in that phytoplankton and then transfer it to the bay bottom where it's out of circulation with the atmosphere. So we're trying to wrap our, our arms around, you know, what is the role that oysters can provide in, in this service that's become very important and very actually lucrative. Like, you know, demand for carbon markets is really growing. Wow, that's really interesting for sure. Wow. Okay, so I saw, I think, on your Instagram, you're part of the shell recycling program, right? So how does that contribute to, like, the restoration of the bay system and stuff like that with the oysters? Yeah, so Brad is uh, our founding member. Uh, there were a few of us who started the oyster shell recycling program back in 2009, so Gail Sutton, Brad. We worked with the Port of Corpus Christi. We still work with the Port of Corpus Christi, uh, and we... You know, recycling an oyster shell is super simple because the, the shell that you recycle is the shell that goes back into the bay. It's not like something that has to be transformed or taken apart or broken down into other components. So the way that this works is when you eat oysters today, eat your oysters at Water Street, because they're recycling their sh your shells, um, that shell gets collected so it doesn't go into the trash. We take those shells to the port of Corpus Christi where they are far away from you while they are stinky and being bleached by the sun. They, they have to, by Texas Parks and Wildlife regulation, sit out in the sun for at least six months before anything can be done with them. They can't go back into the bay because they could have come from Florida or, or somewhere that maybe had, you know, different species or different, yeah, pathogens. And uh, when we have enough shells stockpiled, we, like I said, we, we use science. We've, we've developed a bunch of maps to understand where the best places in the bays are to put these shells. And we put them back out and we, we rebuild reefs. So essentially we just put the shells back down in the bay bottom in the right places at the right times and then the, let the baby larval oysters do their thing. Attach on and become a living reef. That's awesome. You guys have been doing that since 2009? Since 2009. So we have, we have in partnership with Brad and Water Street, we have, re we have restored over 40 acres of oyster reef with these recycled oyster shells. Wow, that's awesome. And Virginia's and yes, and Virginia's and Port Aransas. Shout out to them too. They've been a partner for a long time. So really quick, Brad, are there you guys and only one other restaurant in South Texas are doing that? Uh, yes, sir. Wow. There's, There's a quite thing. a few restaurants that sell oysters here. You think? Yeah. Well, that kind of drops. Yeah, that drops into the next question, which is for everybody: What role do local communities and businesses play in the oyster conservation efforts? 
And how can individuals support these efforts as individuals? No, don't <laughs> Just the recycling, yeah, and, and finding new oyster spots. Right on. Well, this goes to you then, Vicki. Uh, what is the... Yeah. <laughs> no, no, well, what is the, the oyster aquaculture then? All right, since it's a new topic in Texas, many people might know might not know what oyster aquaculture is. You might hear a lot of different things. Oyster mariculture, oyster aquaculture, oyster farming. I grew up saying it oyster farming, so that's what I'm going to call it. But it's basically where people can go to a hatchery and get tiny baby oysters, which we call oyster seed, and they stock them into different floating cages or bags out in the water, in the same waters where wild oysters are grown. And they're floating there at the top of the surface where they're able to eat all of that great algae that's in our waters, and they grow, and they grow beautifully. And during that growing process, farmers have direct access to their oysters at any time. So they will actually handle the oysters. They'll do things like tumbling, where they actually send it through what looks like a giant rock tumbler, and that creates that perfect deep cup oyster that looks really good served raw. They will also do things like desiccating or air drying, where they'll actually remove the gear and the oysters from the water for up to 24 hours at a time. And that essentially kills off all of what we call biofouling organisms, um, little mudworms, there's barnacles, algae that will grow and try to get into your oysters. And so by air drying them once a week, you can actually keep your oysters and your cages clean. And at the end of it, you get this beautiful oyster that is perfect for the half shell market. So that's what oyster farming is. How does it affect our base system? So I tell people that oysters in a cage versus oysters on a reef provide basically the same pros in the water. Um, so those oysters in the cages are still filtering. They still have the ability to filter up to 50 gallons of water a day. They're still you know, helping to remove excess nutrients from the water and all of that. Those cages actually become new habitat out there where habitat was not there before. And so if you pull an oyster cage out of the water and dump it out, you will find all kinds of critters in there. You will see crabs and shrimp and all kinds of stuff. And with all those little baby things coming into the bags, that attracts the bigger fish. So there are a lot of people out there who like to fish on oyster farms because it is great for sheep's head. You get a lot of speckled trout up in there. Um, so it becomes this new habitat where there wasn't habitat before. But also... Um, it's a way for people to earn money and still work on the water, but they're producing a sustainable product. So all of those oysters that are stocked on an oyster farm come from a hatchery. We're not stealing them from the wild. So that allows all of the wild oyster larvae out there to go and you know attach to the reefs out there and help rebuild that. So by farming oysters, you can actually help create more of a positive shell budget rather than a negative shell budget, which is what you know, the oyster dredgery is doing. They are going out there and taking it out and not really putting it back. We're creating something in a hatchery on land that eventually produces a shell that you can recycle and then use to go and build a reef. So there are so many different benefits of oyster farms that I think aquaculture in general gets a bad rep from other types of species that are you know, raised in net pens or something. But really, oysters in a cage are going to help clear up the water in the bay. It's going to give somebody a job. It's going to give you a product that you can eat at the end of the day that's freaking delicious. Um, so 
There's a lot of pros to oyster farming that people might not know. Awesome. No, that's totally interesting. I've been to Baja, Mexico, and seen the big tuna uh, nets that they yeah. have grow in the fish in. And well, and that's also, that's interesting, too. I didn't mention it. You're not feeding oysters in the wild. You are not putting any sort of oyster feed into the bay. They are eating what is naturally out there, put out there by Mother Nature. So you're not adding something that can pollute the water when you're farming oysters. That. Yeah, yeah. yeah. feed those yeah. fish. Yeah, interesting. Wow. Just knowledge getting dropped. <laughs> I love it. Of course you can. Just, just um, you, you had a really succinct um, economic assessment of what you can do per acre in an oyster farm. Can you just go over that again? I think that's interesting to see the economic impact of oyster farm. So these are rough back of the envelope calculations, so don't quote me on this. But to give you an idea, <laughs> in an acre of a farm, you can harvest roughly 200 to 300,000 market-sized oysters a year. So that's a lot of oysters coming off of one acre. Now there's a lot of other factors, survival, how well you're working your cages, that kind of thing. Um, but each of those oysters will go to market and they can, the farmer can get anywhere from 30 cents an oyster to a dollar an oyster, depending on how good their product is. Um, Yeah, so it is kind of a big startup. Um, here in Texas, to lease an acre for oyster farming, you will pay about $2,000 an acre per year. That's a recurring cost. And then for the gear itself, it ranges anywhere from about $55,000 an acre all the way up to over $100,000 an acre, depending on what type of gear type you want to use. So once you get all of that, that's a huge you know, capital startup costs and get it all going. Um, there are profitable farms out there, but it is something to think about. It, it, it's a big investment to get a farm going. Yeah, but the payoff is... The payoff could be Yeah, great. I mean, you're, you're basically, you, you know, you're adding to saving our bays, and that's, you can't put a number on that. Oh, so. yeah, and I tell people, you know, oyster farmers are the best stewards of the environment because their job and their income relies on the water that they're farming in. And so they are the ones that are out there picking up the trash. They're out there telling people what, you know, the good things about oysters are. And so they really are the best representatives for the bay. And probably watching salinity levels and, and passing that on to other people. You know, like you said, you're the first, first line of defense of, oh, my goodness, the water went this way or that way. And, and then you can sound the alarm if need be. For sure. For sure. Very interesting. Very cool. So how can oyster uh, aquaculture benefit natural oyster reefs? I think you went into some of that already. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so um, more oysters in the water. If a farmer is farming diploid oysters, which can reproduce, um, that is basically a source of eggs and sperm that creates baby oysters that can go and attach to any substrate out there. Um, so. Oyster farms can actually be a source of new oyster larvae that can eventually recruit onto oyster reefs. Um, another way that they can help is that it's providing a food product that is, you know, taking the pressure off of harvesting from those wild reefs. Um, everybody loves eating oysters. I think that's why we're all out here today. And so if you can find a way to, uh, you know, still harvest oysters but not have to take it from a natural reef, that's great. And that's what oyster farming can do. That's wonderful. 
I just wondered who the first guy to ever be like, I'm going to try eating that rock, you know, and bust that thing up. A very and, smart oh, Indian, probably. Like yeah, totally, totally. I hope he didn't eat the wrong time of year. Yeah, you know, he'd be so bummed, dude. It's like, no, dude, you could totally eat it. These are fine, bro. <laughs> You're like, uh, you first. You first. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you guys for coming out and doing this. I'm sure everybody here really got enjoyed this information. Thanks to Brad for yeah, like, Brad doing man. this. And, uh, and like, if there's anything else you guys really want to, you know, say before you're wrapping it up or give more information about what y'all do and... Come on. I think we should ask Brad to tell us what he learned in his first year as an oyster farmer. <laughs> Not to do no, it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, hey, David, stand up. Just So there's the number three permitted oyster farmer in the state of Texas. I, I get a lot of credit. David's out there busting his tail like the rest of us with this. He's got about 17 brothers, 30 or 40 cousins that I can tell, but uh, more. And um, he, he gets help out there. But David's doing an excellent job. His oysters are... Uh, Matagorda pearls are available over there, and and so I, I can't remember what the question was, but I never answer the question. <laughs> Tell us what you learned in this lesson. My, you know, I, I learned a ton. We killed way more oysters than we sold in in year one, and it was a a brutal learning curve. And when everybody told me start small and grow into it. I, I thought that was for mere mortals. I discovered that I am way below mere mortal. Um, we killed a lot of oysters. Um, but I, I'm telling you, it's, it's extremely rewarding. The oysters that went in the bay with you guys were big as the end of my little finger. You can see over there where Drake is, the... the, um, the the end product or, or what David's end product is. It's an amazing critter. It grows and it has this hard shell and it, I mean, they're just fascinating and, and they are foundational species. We gotta have them. They're a foundation of our bays. And so I love being a part of it. The other thing that I'll say, and I'm, and I promise I'll shut up, but, um, the people who are attracted to this business are just like y'all that are attracted to this talk. Cool, interested, young people, capitalistic turtles, uh, people, who are, people who are interested in what's happening. Smart, young, ambitious. Drake walked away. Uh, Drake is a, is a, has a degree in marine biology and I've got him out there paying him coolie wages because uh, I've convinced him this is a cool thing to do. And so it's a cool thing to do that attracts people like you see on this stage. So I appreciate y'all coming out and supporting this because it will support our efforts to continue doing what we're doing. You're part of the beginning. Well, yeah, make sure and cruise around. Like you say, you see baby oysters as they grow and the, uh, the way they build them up. And these guys are great explanations of everything that goes on. And I've learned a lot already today, and I just got here. <laughs> <laughs> but we're very grateful for you, Brad. Uh, we appreciate this platform that we can talk and uh, bring these things to light. Uh, 
but, you know, it's, they're under our feet most of the time, so these people need to read and learn about them. So thank you all very much for thank attending you. us, and uh, we really appreciate you all being here and all the information. And uh, let's go enjoy some oysters. Uh, yeah. Yes, sir. I'm going to pop in one more time, guys. Um, I just wanted to say thanks so much for listening, and if you enjoyed this conversation, um, it's actually going to be available on our podcast, the Gulfstream Podcast. We'll have it live next week. It's called the Spat Chat, so look for that. And again, feel free to uh, to subscribe and like our podcast. So thanks so much. Thanks so much to everybody for being here today, and thanks to our moderators. You guys did an excellent job. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, consider contributing to a greater gulf by visiting heartresearch.org. That's H-A-R-T-E research.org.